such a gift, such a privilege, such a joy to be able to come together like this and open the living word of God. The word is living. It speaks to us. It moves deep inside us. It changes us and it shapes us. And I believe and pray that the Holy Spirit will do that through his word this morning. We've been walking through the book of Mark together. And this morning we've made it to Mark chapter 13. So you can turn there. We'll get there eventually, I promise you. We will get there eventually. Um, and at this point in Mark, we're about halfway, about halfway through the last week of Jesus' life, or the last week of his life leading up to his crucifixion, at least. Let me just grab some water. We're about halfway through the last week of uh, Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion. And you probably know, because I know you've read it many, many, many times. Um, but during Jesus' last week before his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus was based in and around the city of Jerusalem. whole of his last week, week took place around the region of Jerusalem. And much of the events that we read about in the last week of Jesus' life took place in the temple, the temple which was in the city in Jerusalem, at the heart of the city. Now, the temple, I'm sure you know, and in fact, Ian spoke a bit about this when he shared communion with us. Thank you, mate. That was really special. Bless you for that. The temple was such a huge theme running throughout the storyline of the Bible. In fact, there are some Bible scholars who would say that the temple is the main theme of the storyline of the Bible. The concept of the temple, the word doesn't appear on the first page, but the concept of the temple appears on the first page of the Bible. And it appears pretty much on every page in some way, shape or form, right until the very last page of the Bible. The temple really is a dominant theme running through the entire storyline of the Bible. And for the Jewish people, especially the Jewish people, the people amongst whom Jesus lived, of whom Jesus was one, the people that Jesus interacted with, for the Jewish people, it would be really almost impossible to overstate how significant the temple was in their minds and in their hearts and in their life as a nation. The temple really was at the center of all that the nation of Israel, the people of God, were about. You see, for the Jewish people, the temple was what made their nation so special. Because in the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in the heart of Jerusalem, it was where God had chosen to live. You read the story of the Old Testament, you discover pretty quickly that God chose to live in the temple, right in the heart of Jerusalem. Now that is an interesting concept to get your mind around to begin with. 
the idea that God, who we know is bigger than the whole universe, amen, right? God is bigger and greater and wider. He is the creator of everything that we see. He inhabits all of space and all of time. In fact, there's a famous prayer in the Old Testament from King Solomon where he says, even the heavens, God, even the highest heavens could not contain you. And so the, the God that is revealed to us in the Bible is a God who is bigger than all space and all time. So to talk about him living somewhere is kind of a perplexing concept to get your minds around. How can the God who is everywhere live somewhere? It's difficult to wrap your minds around, but it is true nonetheless. You read through the story of the Bible, it becomes really clear that God chose, even though he is everywhere, God chose to live somewhere. And that somewhere was in Jerusalem. And the temple was the place where God chose to live. You might want to say that God, although he is everywhere, you're right guys, come on in, no, no problem, no problem at all. You might say that God, even though he is everywhere, he chose to concentrate his presence in the temple at Jerusalem. And it was this reality that made the Jewish people so proud. God lives here. The God of all things. He's chosen to live with us. And so for the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, in their minds and in their hearts, was the best place on the earth. I talked to a Jewish people at the time of Jesus. He said, where's the best place on the earth, they're going to say Jerusalem. You can go to the highest mountain heights, you can crawl to the deepest depths, you can travel to the farthest flung places of the universe. To the Jewish person, there is no place better than Jerusalem. Why? Because this is where God lives. We see this coming out time and time again in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a really famous song written for us in the Psalms. I think this will come up on your screen where uh, the, the, the Jewish people are celebrating the fact that God lives in Jerusalem. It says this, Psalm 48, verse 1 and 2. It says, great is the Lord. He is greatly to be praised. Can you flick this on? Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God i.e. Jerusalem. The city of God is Jerusalem. His holy mountain, i.e. the temple, wherever you see holy mountain in the Bible, it refers to the temple. Or wherever you see Mount Zion, it refers to the temple. His holy mountain is beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of the whole earth. You see, for the Jewish person, there's no better place in Jerusalem because God lives there. It's the joy of the whole earth. Similarly, in another song that we read in the Bible, a much sadder and somber song, but the same, um, the same idea comes through. Lamentations 2, it says, this is, talking about Jerusalem, this is the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. 
to the Jewish people, to the people that Jesus was interacting and engaging with in Mark chapter 13. There was no better place than Jerusalem. It was the joy of the whole earth. Place of joy and beauty. Jerusalem and the temple was also, as well as being a place of joy and beauty, it was a place of great power as well. You know, as we read through the Bible, it becomes really clear that for the people of God, not only did they believe that God ruled over them as a nation, they believed that their God ruled over all nations. They believed that their God ruled over all peoples and all places and all things. The God revealed in the Bible, the God of the Jewish people is a God of infinite power. Infinite power who ruled over all things. It says this in a prayer from King David in 1 Chronicles 29. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. <laughs> For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come from you, and you rule over all. This is what the Jewish people had come to know, to be God that they worshipped and served. He wasn't just the God of their nation. He was the God of all nations. He wasn't just the God of a small strip of land in the Near East. He was the God of the whole cosmos. He ruled over all things. All things belonged to him. He was exalted as the head over all things to the Jewish person. God was infinite in power. And because God had chosen to live in Jerusalem, they actually believed that God ruled the universe from the temple, right? So you might say that for the Jewish person, the temple in Jerusalem was the governing HQ of the entire cosmos. This was the base of operations. This is where God ruled all things from. Just like whoever leads our nation governs the country from Westminster, right? the Jewish people believed that God governed the cosmos from the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was a place of joy and beauty, and it was a place of great power. It was also, friends, a place that symbolized safety and stability. Because God lived there, the God who ruled over all things, who all things belong to, perfect in wisdom and infinite in power and it was felt that the temple was an unshakable place, an impenetrable fortress. Why? Because God lives there. The God of all things. He lives there. And so therefore it's an unshakable place. We read this again in the psalm. Psalm 125 brings this idea out, I think, quite clearly. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, the temple, Mount Zion, the 
temple, which cannot be moved. It abides forever. Mount Zion, the psalmist says, cannot be moved. It abides forever. Why? Because God lives there. The God of all things. The one who is infinite in power and majesty and glory. He lives there. So Mount Zion can never be moved. It will endure forever. And so the temple was so deeply symbolic for the people of Israel down through the ages. It wasn't just a nice building in Jerusalem. It was a building that symbolized joy, outrageous joy, perfection in beauty. It symbolized infinite power and majesty. It symbolized strength and security. The temple was so significant in the minds and in the hearts of the Jewish people throughout their history. And its significance was reflected in its magnificence. Right? The significance of the temple, beauty, joy, power, authority, safety, stability, it was reflected in its magnificence. In the ancient world, there was no other building quite like the temple. It was majestic. No other structure came close in terms of beauty and strength and craftsmanship. It was majestic. I've got a picture of it from 2,000 years ago. You didn't know they had cameras back then, but they did. Because I've managed to get hold of a picture. This was the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. It's pretty impressive, huh? Look at the size of that. I mean, you can still see some of the foundation stones when you go there today. It really does, even today, takes your breath away. The size and the strength of it. There was nothing quite like the temple. I mean, look at the size of it compared to the other dwellings surrounding it. It just swallows them, right? Its vastness was designed to communicate its beauty and its strength, right? It's so big. Designed to communicate the power of God, the bigness of God. We don't see it on this uh, particular picture, but if you got up close to that temple, you would see there was nothing that could compare in terms of its craftsmanship. Beautiful, intricate details. The best of the best of the best came to work on the temple. They used the best kind of materials, the most expensive kind of materials. I mean, in terms of its beauty, there was nothing that could compare to the temple. Why? Because God lives there. And God is beauty beyond compare. And its stones, I mean, the stones that this temple were made out of are massive. We're not talking little bricks like this. The bricks that we make our houses out of. The stones were huge. Probably the size of the width of this room and probably the height of me. Massive. Even bigger. Absolute. Don't ask me how they moved them. Right? But the stones that this temple was made out of were massive. And they were massive because they were designed to communicate the strength of God. God lives here. 
This is an unshakable place. This is an impenetrable fortress and the size of the stones they used to build it were designed to communicate. And so the temple could not have been more significant at the time of Jesus. A place of beauty, a place of joy, a place of power, a place of authority, a place of impenetrable strength, a magnificent place. And in Mark chapter 13, it begins like this. Flick the slide up for me. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. This is how they all felt about the temple. Look, Jesus, look at how magnificent this structure is. Look at how beautiful, look at how wonderful this temple is. Look, Jesus, do you see it? Do you see the beauty? Do you see the strength? Do you see the power that is just emanating out of the place? Look how wonderful it is, Jesus. Verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Hmm. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now we read that quickly and we skip over it, but if you were in the immediate hearing of Jesus' voice, you would have taken a sharp intake of breath right there. <gasps> the temple? Being thrown down? This place of joy and beauty, this place of infinite power, this place of impenetrable strength, this place where God has chosen to live amongst us, it's going to be thrown down. This would have been an unthinkable horror for the people that Jesus was interacting with. For the temple to be destroyed was like the worst thing that any Jew could have imagined at that particular time. For the, the, just the idea of the temple being destroyed would have felt tantamount to the end of the world. For the temple to be destroyed, it, it, it would have felt like the whole universe was... Remember, this was God's HQ, right? This is where the God of all things governed the universe. And Jesus looks at it and says, it's all coming down. It, it, it would have hit them much harder than the thought of just a nice building being destroyed. It would have been way more significant than that. To them, it would have felt like the whole universe is beginning to implode. Why? Because the God of the universe lives there. And if the temple where he lives is being destroyed, what does that mean for the universe? And so for Jesus to look at that temple and say, it's all going to be thrown down, it would have hit them between the eyes like a ton of bricks. But that's what Jesus says. He looks at the temple and he says, boys, it's going to be reduced to rubble. It's going to be reduced to rubble. And that would have seemed impossible to anyone who looked at the temple in those days. But Jesus says, believe me, it's coming down. And you know Jesus was right. 
You know, Jesus was right about that. I mean, Jesus is right about everything, right? But he was right about that. And we don't read about it in the Bible, but in the history books we read about it. 37 years after Jesus spoke these words. AD 70, massively significant year for the nation of Israel. AD 70, you can read about this in the history books all day long. AD 70, the Romans overthrow the temple. And just like Jesus says, they reduce it to a pile of rubble. An unthinkable horror. An unthinkable horror for any Jew living in those days. For the temple to come down, it would have sent shockwaves across the known world. Do you remember how it felt when the Twin Towers came down? Remember that? You all know where you were when you heard that news, right? That was a, a, a day when shockwaves were sent across the earth. And the world really has never been the same since. Think that level of shock and multiply it times 10. That's what it would have felt like for the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed. This was God's dwelling place. And the Romans had come in and reduced it to a pile of rubble. A moment of terror and anguish and misery. But decades ahead of time, Jesus forewarns his disciples about what's going to happen. He says, boys, this temple's coming down. In fact, he forewarns them about far more than just the temple coming down. Let's read on in Mark 13, shall we? Verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, this is just outside the walls of Jerusalem, opposite the temple, Peter, James and John and Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In other words, the disciples say, Lord, you say the temple's coming down. Well, when? Tell us when that will happen. And what are the signs that that will happen? Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9, but be on your guard. They're going to deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child and children will rock will rise against parents <coughs> excuse me, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we don't have time to unpick and unpack all that Jesus is saying and predicting here, but essentially, he looks at his disciples and he says, boys, over the next few decades, things are going to get messy. It's essentially what Jesus is saying. 
saying, boys, over the next few decades, things are going to get messy and it's going to feel like the world is spinning out of control. The temple's going to come down. Earthquakes are going to be firing off the place. Wars are going to be kicking off everywhere. Brothers are going to betray their own brothers. Faithful Christians are going to be persecuted for their faith and killed for their faith. Jesus looks at his disciples and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He says, boys, this is what's going to happen. He forewarns them of all the chaos, of all the mess, of all the turmoil that they're about to head into over the next three decades. He forewarns them. Why? Because he wants to prepare them. Because he wants to prepare them for all that is about to take place and for all that will happen to them. Now, why am I telling you all this? What relevance does a temple that was destroyed 2,000 years ago and some Christians who were persecuted 2,000 years ago, what relevance does it have to me in my own life here in this little corner of the UK? What relevance do these words, I mean, they're nice, interesting facts that you're giving us relevance how does that actually help me today well listen we're not, well I don't know if any of us are Jewish here some of us may be Jewish in some way shape or form but none of us really were living at the time of Jesus none of us see, saw that temple none of us really felt the significance of all that the temple symbolized nobody none of us really felt the emotional weight of all that these events carried right none of us do but friends tell me if this is not true how many of us have ever been in a situation where it has felt like our world has spinning out of control. How many of us have ever been in a situation where it feels like the ground beneath us is crumbling? How many of us have ever been in a situation where it feels like all the joy that we once enjoyed has been sucked out of life? How many of us have been in a situation where it feels like God who we once trusted so deeply seems to have lost control? That's what the people, that's what the disciples were about to walk into. A world that looked like and felt like it was spinning out of control. A world that looked like and felt like God had abandoned. You know, I look around the world today and sometimes in my weaker moments, I go, really, God? Really? Because it does feel like doesn't it, that the world's kind of out of control, doesn't it? Crisis after crisis, turmoil after turmoil, chaos over chaos. It looks and feels at times that the world is out of control. There are times when it is easy to begin to feel like God has lost control of his world. And that's what Jesus was forewarning his disciples about. He said, boys, over the next few decades, it's going to get so crazy around here that you're going to feel like I've lost control. And so even though we weren't there at the time, 
even though we weren't there at the time, I really believe that Jesus' words of comfort and instruction to his disciples are just as relevant for you and I today as it was for them. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the world is going to get crazy. The world is going to begin to spin out of control. Here's what I want you to know when these things begin. Jesus gives them three words of instruction to prepare them for what was about to come. Well, he gives them more than three words, but there's three words. Just quickly, want to spend some time thinking. Things going a bit mental. Oh, there we go. It was unplugged a little bit. My bad. Jesus gives three words of comfort and encouragement for the people to prepare them for the chaos that they were about to walk into. He says this. When these things begin to happen, one, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Two, don't be alarmed. And three, don't give up. And I believe these are Jesus' words for us this morning, friends. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. And don't give up. Listen to what he says, look. Verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When everything begins to kick off, when everything begins to unravel, what it does is it, it causes many, many, many people to be gripped by fear and anxiety. And when many, many people are gripped by fear and anxiety, what it does is it provides an opportunity for certain human figures to step into that void and to play the part of a saviour who's going to bring some sort of salvation, right? When everything is going crazy, when everyone is capitulating to fear and anxiety, often human figures will step up and say, put your trust in me, I'm going to fix this mess. We see it all the time. I mean, this is kind of what politicians do. Listen, I'm not trying to suggest that politicians are the antichrist or anything, but we've heard it, all the rhetoric over the last couple of weeks. You got Rishi Sunak last night saying, you can trust me. With the crisis in the NHS, you could, it's safe in my hands, he says. I, I listened to him last night. He says, I can unequivocally say the NHS will be safe in my hands. And you've got his opponent coming up saying, don't you worry, don't listen to him, he's talking nonsense. You can trust me with the economy, with the cost of living crisis, with the health crisis, with the climate crisis. You can trust me, put your faith in me, put your vote on my name and I will make it all better. This is what politicians do. And listen, I'm not trying to say that they're antichrist figures. You know, they're doing their best and I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to ask that God gives them wisdom to help us, help govern us well with integrity so that we as a nation begin begin to flourish again but this is what happens when the world begins to spin out of control people will step into that gap and say trust me I can save you and Jesus says that will happen don't believe a word of it Jesus says don't believe a word of it many are going to rise up pretending to be some sort of salvation figure don't believe it Jesus says don't be led astray do not be deceived. Do not put your hope in purely human people. They cannot save us. They cannot fix this mess. Never put all of your hope in a human. There's only one place we can put all of our hope. Do not be deceived, Jesus says. He also says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Look, we can see this. 
Don't be alarmed in verse, what verse is it? Yeah, somewhere around there. I haven't got it in my notes. When these things begin to happen, don't be alarmed, Jesus says. In other words, don't, don't be taken, oh, brilliant, seven, verse seven, fantastic. Don't be taken by surprise when chaos ensues, when panic spreads, when terror takes hold. Jesus says, don't be taken by surprise. Don't be alarmed at these things. These things must happen. In other words, when it all begins to kick off, don't for a second begin to believe that God has lost control or that these things are happening outside the perfect plan and purpose of God. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says. Don't be surprised by all the chaos that is surrounding you. In fact, I love the way that Jesus describes it. I love this. He says, these things are but the beginning of birth pains. These things are but the beginning of birth pains. I love that. Because it's a word of hope and encouragement in the midst of great pain and turmoil. Listen, I've been in the room with someone giving birth four times in my life. And I don't know for sure, friends, I don't know for sure, but I do get the impression that it's quite an uncomfortable thing. Right? (laughs) I don't know for sure, but I do get the impression that it's quite uncomfortable. And I, didn't learn, I don't know much about childbirth, even after being sort of in the room four times. I don't know much, but here's what I do know, is that as the, as the labor progresses, I do know that the pain gets more frequent. And I do know that the pain gets more intense. And I do know that the pain gets more unbearable. Amen? (laughs) Right? I know that. We all know that. Because that's the process of labor. But here's what I also know. Is that the more intense the pain gets, the more frequent it gets, the more unbearable it becomes closer we are to new life coming forth. And this is the way Jesus chooses to describe the chaos and the turmoil that surrounds us at times. He says it's the beginning of birth pains. And the more intense it becomes, The more frequent it becomes, the more unbearable it feels. Friends, you can take hope because we are closer to new life than we've ever been. And the pain is actually producing new life. It's not meaningless pain. It's producing new life. And so don't fall into a pit of despair. Don't fall into a pit of despair when... You, you watch the news. When you watch the news and it just, it just looks like there is no hope for the world, right? Don't fall into a pit of despair. Yes, be concerned. Yes, grieve. Yes, lift up the world before our gracious Heavenly Father. But don't fall into a pit of despair. It's just birth pains and new life is coming. That's the promise of God is that new life is coming. New creation is coming. Jesus says it's birth pains and lastly with this I've finished Jesus says don't give up verse 13 he says the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. I love this. In all the chaos, in all the craziness, in all the turmoil, in all the confusion, in all the terror, in all the fear, what is our job as disciples? Just keep going. Don't give up. I love that. I love it because Jesus says, when all this happens, friends, he doesn't say, I want you to rise above it. He doesn't say, I want you to overcome it. He doesn't say, when all this begins to happen, I want you to be a giant slayer. I want you to stand up strong and to walk into the fight. You know, he says, just keep going. Just don't give up. And I love those words from Jesus. Because, you know, when life is spinning out of control, when the world is unraveling, when my own personal life is spinning out of control, in those moments, I don't think I can be a giant slayer in those moments, man. I don't think I can rise above it. I just don't have the strength or the wherewithal within me. I don't think I can overcome the, 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 the pressure that's placed upon me at times in life. In those moments, I just can't, I can't be that giant slayer that some people tell me I should be. But Jesus never tells me to be a giant slayer. He just says, when the pressure, when the pressure comes, all you've got to do is stand. All you've got to do is keep going. And I believe and I feel that I can do that. Not in my own strength, of course, only with the strength that God provides. But when life is tough, when the pressure bears down on me, when I feel like I'm being crushed by life, Jesus just says, just endure, just keep going, don't give up. You know, sometimes following Jesus is just about hanging on, friends. Sometimes it is. It's just about hanging on. Because sometimes the world can be a tough place to live and sometimes life can be a painful thing to walk through. Sometimes following Jesus is just about hanging on, believing that he is faithful and he will be true to his promise. And if I just hold on, I am going to walk into new life one day. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Don't give up. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these words of truth. Thank you for these words of power. Thank you for these words of glory, Lord. Thank you that you have not um, left us without help in this world, Lord. You have told us all that we should expect. And thank you, Lord, that not only have you told us all